0: Thanks to Casper for supporting Industry Focus. For $50 off any mattress, go to casper.com slash fool and enter promo code FOOL. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's September 6th, and I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Harges. I have healthcare contributor Todd Campbell on the line. Todd, what is on your mind today? Buyouts, buyouts, buyouts. Yeah, I can see why. Last week, you were talking to my colleague Michael Douglas on this show about Gilead Science's acquisition of Kite Pharma. So This week, we figured we would continue the trend a little bit by highlighting some stocks we think might be the next takeover candidates. And after that, we'll discuss the demise of Tema Pharmaceutical, a stock which shed half its value just last month. But first, Todd, I feel like the biotech space is particularly talked about in terms of buyout speculation. Why do you think that is?
1: You know, people like to hit home runs in this industry. <laughs> you know, I mean, but by, by the nature of the beast, I mean, with with clinical trial trials uh, failing and success successes being rare and failing more frequently, people have to um, when when they go in and, and they buy biotech stocks, they're they they tend to be more risk tolerant. Wouldn't you agree, Christine?
0: Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I, <laughs> investors should be pretty risk tolerant if they're going to enter, particularly the clinical stage biotech space. Uh, but I don't know. It, it confuses me why there's so much speculation and hope for buyouts. Because if it were me and I was buying one of these companies that had what I thought could be a blockbuster drug, I wouldn't want it to get bought out. I would want all that upside of them potentially bringing it to market and actually succeeding. But maybe that's like a long-term, short-term difference. Yeah, but
1: Christine, you know, I mean, it's not like it's not like consumer goods where you're dealing with a brand like Coca-Cola, right? I mean, all of biotech is driven by patent expiration or protection, right? So in, in innovation moving so quickly, you may have a great innovative product, but how long will that innovation keep you ahead of the competition that's coming up the pipeline behind you? So I think that there are, you know, from, from a from a corporate standpoint, some reasons why you've got entrepreneurs who are saying, you know, let's ring the register and be willing to sell. And then from the, the I guess the acquirer standpoint, you've got people saying okay we've got patents expiring what's the next big thing and can we bring that into our fold to make up off, offset that risk
0: Yeah, you're right. I can totally see why both sides of the equation would be interested in it. I guess my hesitation is, why do investors push for it so much? But I I think it's more just the fun of speculating, and that's (laughs) exactly what we're about to do, is speculate a little bit on who we think could be the next big buyout. One place where there's been a ton of hype around potential acquisitions is none other than the CAR-T space. As a refresher, Kite Pharma, which I mentioned earlier was bought by Gilead Sciences, is a CAR-T cancer drug developer. And on Kite's acquisition, a bunch of the other T developers also had their share prices pop, which to me is very indicative that people think that some of these other smaller players might also get acquired.
1: Yeah, that move up in Juno was
0: pretty insane, wasn't it, Christine? Yeah, I was pretty happy to see it. I, a long time ago, realized I probably should have had my money in Kite instead of Juno, but I'm still sitting on my Juno shares and was definitely a happy camper that day.
1: Yeah, I think we got what a 40% move up in in the span of a couple days and you know obviously investors were extrapolating, hey, you know if if Novartis gets approved their CAR T approved and then Kite, you know, theoretically gets its approved in November and Gilead just spent all this money acquiring Kite to be able to get that upside and then Juno, Juno's got these CAR T drugs too and maybe those drugs will be even better. So perhaps I should get involved with them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think there are a couple of different ways people might be looking at this. The first is that Gilead might not be finished buying CAR-T developers. I I think there are some people out there that look at Gilead's strategy here and say, they're not done. They don't want just Kite. They want to build an entire oncology franchise built around cellular cellular therapy, which is exactly what you heard John Milligan say on the conference call regarding the Kite acquisition, is that they're looking to do this, to to see other companies they could fold in and augment what they've already uh, built by buying Kite. Uh, so, this is that string of pearls acquisition technique where, instead of making one enormous splashy purchase, you can tuck in a couple of companies here and there, and they definitely have the money to do that. And then, on the other side of that coin, you could also have speculation that someone else is going to buy Juno, and I'm, I'm not sure who exactly that would be, but it could be someone a name in the mix there, Christine. Who are you going to throw? I'll say Celgene. Yep. <laughs> Why not? Right? Yeah. Well, because they've already been looking at Juno with in terms of partnerships. Oh, absolutely. And,
1: and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that they took a stake in it uh, previously when it inked its deal on, on CAR-T development. So, I, I think that Celgene has shown uh, that it loves to tie itself to the wagon of emerging biotechnology. They don't have an, an internal CAR-T option. They, they do have... Some collaborations, one with Bluebird Bio, which was another stock that rallied significantly following the news on on Kite. We've discussed that one on the show previously. Um, so they've got a couple of deals for externally for CAR T, but they don't have anything internally. And since you know they've already shown that they want to be a major player in cancer, um, you know you you could see that as being a possibility. But you know. I always get so nervous, right, when we start talking about ifs and buts and when's and what ifs and.
0: Yeah, you sound like you're about to throw out some caveats.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, okay. So, if you look at what's been happening with Car T, Juno, I, I'm not going to call it an also ran, but I mean, they went from being a front runner to now being in in. We'll call it third place. You know, I mean, their JCAR 015, they had to shutter development of that. That was their lead product candidate. And they had to shutter development when safety risks pot risks, up. Specifically, people were dying because of uh, brain swelling, or they had some patient deaths because of brain swelling. Now, they've now shifted their focus to JCAR 017, which is a very intriguing drug. It's next generation CAR T, and they think that it could be safer. But it's not like they've necessarily proven that out you know they're not at the same stage as say Kite was with a, a pending FDA application or that Novartis was with their CAR T in you know getting a unanimous support from an adcom committee um, so i think there's a significant amount of risk with all the remaining CAR T players and that does make me you know a little bit cautious on the idea of them being a buyout
0: yeah and they're appropriately a lot smaller than Kite at the at the inflated market cap, uh, Juno and Bluebird are both around less than half the size currently and that of course reflects the fact that they are earlier stage even bluebird is, is super early but they also have this entire side gene therapy program one more name that I want to mention because Todd you brought up the safety risks involved here with car T and this company that I think has a really novel way of addressing the safety risks is so so tiny they're only 350 million dollars in market cap which for Gilead to purchase them that would be pennies to them and this company is called Bell Come. They have an interesting molecular switching technology that could potentially make it best in class down the road, but way down the road, it'll be years. Their lead candidate could maybe hit the market in 2019. So, super interesting technology that could potentially improve the outcomes of some of these CAR T therapies, um, things like like stem cell transplants, which often have complications. But this again is an extremely early stage company. I, I'm not even sure if Gilead would be interested in them because it's so tiny that it probably won't even be a needle mover.
1: Yeah, I mean, a company like Gilead, they like to focus on companies that that you know are a little bit further along in their development, a little bit closer to market, they can see a return on their investment in a relatively short period of time. They've they've bet their they've tied their wagon to kite right now. I think unless one of these other com- companies comes out there and shows that they really have drop-dead better well, advocacy, <laughs> better, better safety. See, you know what? Safety is going to be key in CAR-T, Christine. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a bunch that's of the Juno the theory
0: right now, is that, yeah, they're not going to be first, but they might be safest.
1: Exactly, and if they're safest, that's critical because right now CAR Ts are getting approved for use in uh, refractory disease, uh, disease that's heavily pretreated patients. These these patients don't have a lot of treatment options. If they want to be able to tap into the much larger pool of cancer patients and move that up into earlier forms of treatment they need to be able to prove that these, these, these drugs are safe. Now, in clinical trials, you know, I think Juno's got shown some really interesting interim results that suggest that possibly um, it, it may have a better safety profile than, say, um, Kite's axicell. cell uh, but that needs to be, you need to roll this out in more patients, you need to evaluate this, because the interim stuff that we saw in JCAR15 looked good too, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely need a bigger sample size.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, and whenever it comes to investing in clinical stage um, uh, companies, uh, I really do caution investors of, of chasing the news and trying to buy something um, simply because it's running up uh, because of something that's happened you know, to another company. It's a risky way of investing. I think you're better off saying, okay, do I like the technology after doing the research, reading everything there is on The Fool about Juno, am I convinced that this company's got a better mouse track? Trap. If it if it if you think that's the case, then be a little patient. Wait for shares to sort of balance out a little bit. They've had a big run up, and then you know pick your spots. And again, keep it to a small uh, diversified position in your portfolio.
0: Yep, yep. So let's pivot pretty hard here away from Carti and go over to the robotic surgery market. Where Todd, you brought up to me another company that you think might be a very good buyout candidate.
1: Well, you know, Christine, we spent a lot of time talking on the show about companies in biopharma, right? We don't really talk as much about companies in, you know, med tech. And I thought it might be interesting to go out and try and find a company in med tech that fits three criteria. I wanted to find something that's a little bit off the, you know, off the beaten path, um, something that's disrupting an in, 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 in industry, right? I also wanted to find something that's already got a product on the market that's delivering sales growth. And I wanted to find a company that was already being shown some interest or some love by a larger company that could potentially become an acquirer. And when I put all that stuff up in the mixing bowl, name that popped out for me was Mazor uh, Robotics, a robotics company that's re-envisioning the way surgeons do spinal surgery.
0: So, at first, when I looked at this company, I was like, oh, well, you know, Intuitive Surgical, they're just going to dominate this space. Why would I ever be interested in a smaller player? But it turns out that they're actually two pretty separate markets. Mazur has the Mazor X and the Renaissance systems that help surgeons perform spine and brain procedures, which is pretty different than what Intuitive Surgical, which, if those students aren't familiar with them, they are the Goliath in robotic surgery. But Intuitive focuses on gynecological, urology, and general surgery. So, right. So more
1: laparoscopic stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what Mazora is doing uh, could potentially improve Well, actually, already. It's already on the market. It's improving the accuracy of surgeons when they're doing these surgeries. It reduces complications. It minimizes the need for interoperative x-rays, which is great because that'll lower the radiation doses that patients are exposed to. And it leads to faster recovery and less postoperative pain. So, all good stuff there.
1: Which is very important because you got to remember that you know these procedures are being reimbursed by Medicare and Medicaid um, at fixed rates. So the more that a hospital can reduce, say, recovery times, get patients in, get patients out, avoid complications that may end up having them return to the hospital where they're not likely to get reimbursed as much from Medicare and Medicaid, the better. You know, I equate this company, Mazur, to where um intuitive surgical maybe was five years ago you know in in the stage of okay we're at a tipping point where we've invested a lot of time effort and energy over the course the last few years in trying to establish ourselves with those first mover surgeons the ones who are saying yes i want to be on the cutting edge of technology and now we're getting to a point where there's enough clinical data and and papers published and and things going on that you know it's becoming a little bit more mainstream and you're reaching that tipping point where more hospitals may go out and start buying these machines which are relatively expensive machines i mean they can run you know eight hundred thousand to a million bucks Um, so it's a big investment for these hospitals and surgery centers and i think that that's what we're seeing now we're seeing this generate um, pretty rapid growth for its la- latest. Uh, uh, system, which is the Mazur
0: X. Which is a win-win, because the more hospitals and surgery centers that you can get into, you not only have the sales from the the systems themselves, you also get roughly $1,500 per procedure in disposable sales. So that's that razor and blades model that we talk about with intuitive surgical. Plus, you also get the service contracts. So at this point, Mazur just wants to sell the most of these machines that they can to continue getting in that that, uh, constant revenue from the procedure. Your sales and from the service contracts. So, what they've done is they've enlisted a little bit of help.
1: Yes. And this brings us to the big company that's showing it some love part of the segment where we we say, okay, we step back and we say, okay, what's the spine market look like? Um, And if this company is disrupting the spine market, what players in spine right now are paying attention? And the company that is really paying attention is Medtronic because Medtronic cut a deal with Mesler last year uh, to start using its sales force to generate out leads that would get surgeons at the hospitals that it calls upon to go and check out Mesler's system.
0: Yeah, and this is a partnership that had initially the responsibility for the two of these two companies to both be marketing the machines through the end of this year, and then it had some some options that came at the end of the year, but we actually just found out earlier this week, I believe it was, that phase two of the agreement is already going to kick in, which means that Medtronic will take over the exclusive rights to distribute the Mazor X system, and it'll also make another investment in the company.
1: Right. It was kind of like a courtship. You know, you went out on a date to see if the two of you liked each other. You know, I mean, you had Medtronic basically getting some very preliminary training on on Mazur's system, uh, learning a little bit about it. And then, of course, you know, starting to talk about it with the people that they're calling upon and get those people to go. The way that the deal had structured originally was that if phase the phase one portion of the deal had gone well, then you'd advance to phase two where Medtronic takes over 100 percent of all the marketing of it but that wasn't expected to happen until February of 2018. Instead they're doing it now. So that tends to show you a little bit of of the opportunity that Medtronic thinks there is for the X, and how it thinks that it may dovetail into its own spine platform, which includes things like say the implants that are being used by this system during these surgical procedures and some of the other componentry that is used by this system during these procedures. You know, you've got Medtronic doing, you know, I think 649 million in quarterly sales tied to spine alone. Um, And and you've got Mazor possibly on the cusp of contributing much more meaningfully to that number over time now that Medtronic is taking over uh, the responsibility of marketing them. Which, by the way, is global marketing. Which is huge, because up towards now, uh, Mazur's really only penetrated the U.S. market. It's it's not very well penetrated outside the U.S.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't even seen ex-U.S. numbers as projections from Mazor, but within the U.S. alone, the opportunity is still huge. Last year, they only used the system in 5,000 different procedures in the U.S., but they estimate that the total addressable market in just the U.S. is 500,000. So, stretch that out to the global opportunity, and yeah, absolutely, this opportunity is enormous.
1: Yeah, I don't know if this is going to get to the size of an intuitive surgical. I think there's a likelihood that at some point Medtronic maybe just swoops in and buys up the company lock, stop, and barrel. It's already, Christine, as part of these deals, putting its money where its mouth in and buying shares in, in Mazur.
0: Yep, the equity stake is also huge just as a, a vote of confidence from right. Medtronic, which is a, a goliath in the space.
1: Right. There are three tranches that Medtronic took advantage of. They bought some shares at $11.42, which has worked out really well for them. They bought another 4% at $21.84. And now they've got a third tranche that they're buying at $38.46. Once they're all said and done, they're going to already own about 12% of Mazor with a, with a potential to take that up to between 14 and 15% uh, because of some warrants.
0: And We'll be watching to see if that ever hits 100%. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of obsessively engineered premium mattresses for a fraction of the cost. Casper's mattresses are made in the USA, and if you're a warm sleeper like I am, you'll love that Casper's breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature throughout the night. You can save an additional $50 towards a mattress purchase by going to casper.com and entering the promo code FOOL. That, again, is casper.com slash fool and promo code fool. Terms and conditions apply. So on to the second segment of today's show where we answer the question, what the heck happened with Teva last month? I
1: feel like we've seen this movie before, Christine. With Teva? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the company goes out, spends a lot of money on acquisitions, gets heavily indebted, sales start to fall, next thing you know, dot, dot, dot.
0: Yeah, here yeah. we are. So Weird. Teva has a lot going on right now, but we will unpack all of that. As a reminder, back in August 2016, Teva bought Activist, which is Allergan's generic business, and this was largely funded by debt. And now fast forward a little bit to today, and that's gotten them in some trouble.
1: Yeah, a, a little bit. You know, I mean, they the timing of it. It looked like a really good deal at the time you know it was 40 40 billion dollar deal with some of it being done in in Teva stock and the rest being done in quote unquote cash they borrowed the money because why not the interest rates are low i can go out and i can buy this money and i can finance it with with the sales growth growth in the cash flow um that thinking is is wonderful as long as you don't stumble and cash flow doesn't start to decline
0: yeah so when teva reported earnings on august 23rd The stock dropped 24% right away, which was due to a confluence of negative news in the earnings report. But the most relevant one to this generics business was them saying that because of customer consolidation and increased competition from other generic drug makers, they're just not getting the prices that they were used to. Apparently, the negotiations that they went through on their contract renewals led to a 6% overall price decrease. And they expect that to continue eroding through the rest of the year, and so that's alarming on its own. But I'm also really worried by the fact that management didn't really seem to see this coming.
1: No, I I, I don't think a lot of the industry did. To to, to be fair, but, you know, I think they some of the pharmacies themselves have been surprised at at the impact of falling uh, generic pricing. I think that you've seen it throughout the entire supply chain. But the reality is that that you know, this is the situation we're in Uh, today. It's on September 6th, right? You know, that that we have a company that is a is a mammoth. It's a Goliath in generic drugs um, that now has this rope around its neck in the form of this big uh, debt uh, um, payment that it has to make. And that's going to force it to make some pretty, pretty drastic, uh, decisions. You For know, they decided to cut their dividend substantially,
0: seventy-five percent. Yeah, yeah,
1: which is something that income investors never want to hear. I mean, they, you know, obviously, um, you could almost hear the the shares being flushed out of income portfolios out on that news, um, and they 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 have all sorts of other problems right now with the share price because Allergan, as part of that deal, got a whole bunch of shares in Teva. They don't want those shares. So they're planning on unloading them in the open market, selling them. So you've got that weight on the share price as well. So you've got a pitch situation where you've got generic drug price compression, hurting margins and crimping cash flow, interest expense rising because of all of this debt. Uh, and a lot of shares becoming available um, for sale that you know is, is affecting the supply and demand uh, on, you know, for the pricing of the individual shares. I'd throw on top of all that, Christine. Yeah, we're Copaxone. Not done yet.
0: Yep. <laughs> Yeah. This is if you had asked me a year ago what is Teva's largest problem, I would have said the fact that Copaxone, which is a huge part of their branded business, we talk about Teva as a, a generics business, but it actually does have a branded segment as well that is dominated by this one multiple sclerosis drug. It's the most popular MS drug in the world. And it's going to come off patent as early as next year it could be facing uh, uh, unbranded competition, dragging down their profits from this drug. So we've had our eye on that forever. And all of a sudden, that problem is just one of many.
1: Right. They went from 20 milligrams to 40 milligrams so they could improve the dosing schedule. That protected market share for a couple of years. Now, there's been ongoing patent disputes between them and some generics that have people thinking that you could end up with a 40 milligram competitor in relatively short order. This is a billion dollar a quarter uh, drug, you know, I mean, at one point it was racking up over four billion in sales. And in the second quarter, sales turned down, I think it was like 12% in the United States to 843 million. I mean, this is a significant potential headwind at a time where the company doesn't need any more significant potential headwinds.
0: Yeah, I'll also note that they are still looking for a new permanent CEO. The guy that they have right now is not, not anything other than an interim president and CEO after the old CEO stepped down last February. So, Todd, to wrap up this segment, when you're looking at this company, it has gotten really, really cheap if you look at it on an earnings multiple basis. Do you think that it could be a value play right now?
1: Value play or a falling knife, take your pick. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, whenever you look at these metrics, they're either trailing 12-month metrics, which really don't reflect the situation that TEV is moving into, or they're forward estimates based on forward estimates, which could very well not pan out depending on how this business ends up performing over the course of the next few quarters. You know, it's very hard to say it's cheap at three times forward earnings per share if those earnings per share. Could end up getting revised 50% lower, right? So we just simply don't know. I mean, you're right. It's trading at a price to book value that's less than one. It's trading at a low single-digit P/E ratio. But the current ratio is also less than one, which means that it doesn't have a whole like a lot of wiggle room in its short term when it comes to financing its short term or paying its short term obligations. Um, I, I think that you know, do I think that Teva Pharmaceuticals is is going to disappear? I, I guess push come to shove no. Am I willing to bet more than 1% of my portfolio on it? <laughs> you know, I think that that's the way you have to look at it. You have to say is okay, maybe this is cheap and I think it's going to come out on the other side. And certainly there are big big demographic trends that support generic uh, prescription volume over time. Maybe I'll put 1% of my portfolio in it and if it ends up, you know, tripling or quadrupling from these levels over a course of 5 or 10 years, yay, I'm rewarded.
0: Yeah, I mean, you also have that dividend yield that at this point is looking kind of insane. I want to say it's somewhere around seven percent, but I I agree with the hesitation in your voice, which says this one is likely to be a falling knife. So I, I also yeah, am not personally- and Christine,
1: that dividend though yield is based on the trailing, not the forward. I don't think, and you know, now that they've cut the dividend, I don't think it's yielding nearly as much. I don't think it's nearly as attractive on that. I mean, over time, you could get into a situation where. You know, cash flow stabilizes. They've got a plan to restructure by selling some units, raising some cash. If they can, if they can do those kind of things and cash flow grows again, well, then maybe the dividend starts increasing, and that'll be one of the key drivers that that makes the stock go much higher. Uh, but it is a very high risk reward stock, in my opinion.
0: Absolutely. So That'll do it for today's show. Before we sign off, a quick reminder that you can always reach out to the team through The Motley Fool Podcast Facebook group or by email at industryfocus@fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Harges. Thanks for listening and Fool on!